0: James Smallman is somebody who has very much got involved in uh, computational fluids, uh, having started as a, as a mathematician, I, I hope that she would now regard herself as, a, as an en- engineer, um, uh, joined what is, is now called HR Wallingford in uh, 1984, um, working mainly on the, the computational side, became uh, a director in uh, 1995 and Uh, Since 2006, uh, managing director of (coughs) HL. So, we could hardly have anyone better qualified to tell us something about the computational side of fluid mechanics. So, I'm certainly very much looking forward to it.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Okay, Um, I hope you can hear me at the back. If my lips are moving and no sound is coming out, can you wave or something and uh, I'll speak up? Can you hear? Okay, good. Um, Well, good afternoon and thank you for inviting me along to uh, give a lecture in this series to celebrate your centenary of engineering science. Um, When I spoke to Alistair, he asked me to speak about hydraulics and uh, that's a fairly big subject so I decided to focus on the bit I knew about um, which is always a good thing to do. Um, I deal with... Engineer civil engineering hydraulics on a daily basis. So civil engineering hydraulics is what I know about, so that's what I'm going to talk about. By way of introduction, um, this is H.R. Wallingford's bread and butter work, is using hydraulics to solve engineering problems. Um, we use by and large leading edge methods, um, and obviously we do quite a lot of R&D to support those methods. So what I'm really going to try and do today is two things. One is to describe first the range of tools that we use. And I'm not just going to talk about computational models because I think there's a danger that everybody thinks computational models are the answer to everything when they're not. But I'm going to talk about the range of tools we use. Um, And the range of tools we use in civil engineering hydraulic studies. Um, I'm then going to um, spend the second half talking about how we use these tools by reference to a few specific projects. So this is real-life application of of hydraulic tools. One comment I would make about the R&D that we do, um, institutions like your own are actually very important in terms of doing the fundamental R&D. And what organisations like us do is pick that up and use it. So I'm a great supporter of the universities and universities doing R&D because that gives us A starting point for a lot of the work that we are able to do in solving practical problems. So let me talk first about methods. Um, There are a number of methods that I will mention but the the three key methods are computational models, physical scale models um, and field measurements. Um, The very important thing and it's not a deliberate mistake it is on there twice is that none of those are any good unless you've got the skill and experience of staff who know what they're doing. Um, Tools are only as good as the people who use them. Uh, They're not magic. So I'm going to talk a little bit first about the different methods. um, And let's start with computational models. Just a few comments about computational models. To use a computational model, um, you've got to, first of all, understand the physics... You've got to be able to describe it in a mathematical (coughs) manner. You've then got to solve it, and preferably using some sort of efficient method, because you do actually want to be able to solve these sorts of problems in better than real time. Um, You need to convince yourself that you're actually getting a credible solution to the problem that you're solving. Um, And that's normally done through calibration and verification of the method that you apply. Health warning. Some problems are simply too complicated for that to be a viable approach. Uh, Most aren't, but some are. Um, Let's think of an example. Uh, What about trying to represent the very complex flows into um, a rock structure? That's a very complex problem to describe mathematically. So it's not something that you could use a computational model for with a, a very high degree of confidence at the moment. It changes, things develop. I'm going to start with an example of a computational model and it's a bit of a non-standard example. Um, This is a computational model Um, and it's a computational model of a ferry leaving the port of Dover for those of you who've been on a a ferry leaving the port of Dover. Um, The waves that you can see are real waves and they're generated from a computational model of of uh, wave motion. The ship is actually moving in a manner that is hydrodynamically correct for the waves that are approaching it. And the person who is operating the ship, because this is operated by a real person in a simulator, um, is the ship is responding to the way in which he is operating the ship. So you've actually, if you like, got three computational models there which are then linked by a visual system so that's a computational model and that's a computational model which includes hydraulics ship motion and the action of an individual in piloting the ship so that's quite a good example of a a very sophisticated computational model. A little bit about physical models Um, that's basically how they work Uh, again fundamentally you need a pretty good understanding of the physics you need to be able to scale the process correctly. And there's a good link here with one of the earlier lectures in that um, you had a lecture on Froude a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Most of the models we use, use Froude scaling. Um, So Froude's quite an important chap to us. If you're going to model something using a physical model, you do actually need accurate measurement methods. Um, So you need clever devices that allow you to capture the information that you're generating. As with computational models, you need to uh, demonstrate, satisfy to your, yourself that the physical model is providing a solution to the problem. Uh, and you will calibrate and verify. Some problems can't be accurately scaled, so they're not a panacea for everything. Uh, an example of something that can't be ac- accurately scaled, the motion of muddy sediments in an estuary. You can't scale that because you can't, in a physical model, um, you can't scale the physical property of the sediment. Um, and you can't physically find a sediment that's small enough to scale. So, again, it's not an answer to everything. Okay, example of a physical model. This is a bit more of a conventional hydraulic model than the ferry leaving Dover. Um, That's a a cross-section through a structure. Um, It's at about 1 to 30 scale. Um, And what we're doing there is we're watching waves overtopping a vertical seawall. The silver-looking device on top of the seawall is um, a mechanism for... um, It's a chute, actually, which is going down to a tank. And what we're doing is we're measuring the amount of wave that's overtopping the structure. Uh, That's quite a good physical representation. And something like that you would use in the design of a structure. And typically, as well as measuring overtopping... On this sort of structure, you'd also measure forces on the structure um, so that you can do the proper structural design calculations. So that's a good example of where you can use a physical model. Um, We're also developing computational models to try and do this. And developing is the right word. They're not there yet, but they're not bad. Um, And at the top of the slide, you've actually got a a computational model, which is actually a, a CFD code. Which is solving Navier Stokes' equation. Um, And that is doing run-up on a slope. And actually that's not bad. It's not a bad representation. The one lower down is um, a more simplified approach and uses a shallow water equation uh, through the section. Um, And what that's doing is is that again it's doing waves up the slope, but it's also trying to look at waves permeating the core of the structure that it's it's running up. Um, And again, that's not bad. Not quite there yet, and you wouldn't use it for final design, but it's not bad. The huge advantage of something like this is, is that you can use the physical model to help you understand the physics, and you can also use the physical model to give you verification data for the computational models, so there's a linkage between the two. Okay, my final lot of methods is field measurements. Field measurements are very important. Um, Actually going out and measuring the real thing, there's really not much of a substitute for it. Um, They can help you a lot in understanding how things work. Um, You again need accurate measurement methods and devices to capture the information. Um, They're very useful for providing data, either as initial or boundary conditions, or for calibration and verification. The downside is is that they can be costly and or time consuming so their use is often optimised and you can often optimise their use by using a computational model to try and work out where you should make your measurements. So that's quite a a clever way of doing things. A bit of an example of some of the clever stuff we do at the moment. This is just for orientation purposes. Um, I'm going to just show you some measurements we made in the River Thames uh, a couple of years ago. And we made them in a a bend on the Thames, which you can see on the bottom part of the slide. And we made them across a a transect, a line, so the black line that's going across the the Thames. The Thames at this point um, is um, stratified in that you get uh, a freshwater layer and a salt layer. And you'll see that coming through in the measurements uh, I'm going to show you in a moment. And the sorts of... Clever measurements that you can now make, this is using what's called an acoustic Doppler current profiler. Um, And you run it in something called backscatter mode and from the backscatter from the Doppler profiler, you can actually tune it so that you can measure suspended sediment concentrations. Now, why do you want suspended sediment concentrations? Well, it's so that you can use the information in a sediment transport model. How do we know it works? Well, you do some ground truthing and the device that's on the the right-hand side of the slide is actually what's called a rapid drop profiler. And what that does is it collects water samples in the water column and you can compare the concentrations that you measure in the water samples against the concentrations that you have in the profile. And that will give you um, a ground truthing or perhaps a water truthing of the, uh, the measurements that you're making. Now, you can do that and get some very sophisticated information out of it. Okay, so what this is doing is is that you can see the line on the top left. It's moving along the the tide line, and we're across a transect, so you're seeing a cross-section across the river. Um, And what it's doing is, is that it's measuring concentrations. Um, And what you have on top left is that the red line is giving you the the flux of solids. The blue line is giving you the discharge, so that's the discharge of water coming through. Um, The colours are giving you um, concentrations at the top and currents at the bottom. And the point that I made earlier, if I run it again, is that you can see that um, the... um, current direction is actually reversing as you go across the transect because the current in the blue colours is southward and then the red currents is towards the bank so one's towards the north bank the other's towards the south bank and you've also got on the left hand side the the current vectors so it's a very sophisticated bit of kit for measuring both currents and also sediment concentrations which you could then use in a sediment transport model So, that's a range of methods. Um, In practice, you don't just use one on their own. You tend to use a mixture of them and you'd always use the best tool for the job. So, if the best tool is a computational model, then use that. That's fine. And often you mix and match. Um, Important point is that a lot of those are quite clever, but methods continue to be developed and that's the importance of R&D in that. And you also get a lot of R&D ideas from solving real-life problems. So, that's end of the first part in terms of illustrating some of the methods. Now, what I said I was going to do was give you some project illustrations. And there are three fairly typical sorts of projects that we deal with in in engineering hydraulics. The first one I'm going to talk about is a large-scale port development project in an estuary. The second one, I'll talk a little bit about some of the industrial developments on the coast. And the third one, um, a subject that's close to most people's heart in Oxford, is floods. So, the first one I'm going to talk about is a major port project which was on the Thames that we did some work on or have been doing some work on over the last few years. Um, it's a consultancy project for what was PO. Um, we provided most of the hydraulic studies leading to it getting consent, which is permission to construct. Um, and we hope shortly it's going to start being constructed. Um, we did a lot of work on the hydraulics and the morphology and the dredging, and those are the aspects that I'm going to talk about. Um, As I said, the port's located on the Thames, and just to orientate you, the bit of the Thames it's on is um, just to the uh, west of Canvey Island, um, and it's, if you had taken a photograph about three or four years ago, it would have looked like that. Um, It's where Shellhaven Refinery was, and it's quite nicely located in a bend on the Thames, and the area... That was being developed is shown in the the black box on the left hand side. And if you can just remember for sort of about three or four slides' time, that to the left of that box is an area of mudflats, which is uh, an important wetland habitat um, for birds. That's what it's going to look like when it's finished. Um, So it's going to be a big um, container terminal development. So there's going to be lots of berths uh, down on the the bottom there, and you can see some container ships moored there. And then you've got a big sort of um, effectively parking area where they park the containers that they bring in. What were we doing? Um, We were doing a number of things um, because there were a number of issues to look at. Um, Our work was mainly concerned with the environmental impact assessment, but also an extent to the design of the development. Um, and we were considering things like the loss due to reclamation and the areas dredged in terms of the uh, impact on the seabed. We needed to look at the release of fine sediments during the dredging activity, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. We needed to look at runoff and the ra- reclamation, so when they're actually putting the sediment into the reclamation, a certain amount of it runs off into the, into the estuary. The impacts are important because this whole area has a a certain designation under the Habitats Directive, Um, and therefore you have to demonstrate what the impacts on the ecology are. So what we're doing here is that we're basically using hydraulic modelling to work out the impact on the hydraulics, the consequential impacts on the sediments and morphology of the estuary, and then the consequential impacts of that on the ecology. And if it's demonstrated to have an impact, you have to then think about mitigating that impact. And that's that's how it works under the legislation. So, that's what it's all for. We did a number of studies, and I've listed them there. I won't run through them. Um, But they're basically there to support the process leading to consent, and hopefully, if it gets consent, construction. Now, the range of models used... Um, Models were mostly computational models um, and we also did a lot of work on collecting data uh, and using that data to verify and support the conclusions that we were drawing from the computational models. We did the studies in three phases actually. Um, the initial studies, we looked at the way in which the estuary had developed prior to them actually considering this um, development. We collected ADCP data, which I've just mentioned, and suspended sediments information. We used a 2D flow model, which I'll come on to in a moment, and we used what's called a random walk plume model with the 2D flows to look at the way in which fine material released during the reclamation and dredging operation would move in the estuary. And I'll say a little bit more about why that's important. So, what we have here is is that we're actually looking at what happens during dredging and placement of fill material. Um, And we've already set up a 2D flow model of the estuary, so a conventional 2D hydrodynamic model. And we're basically running a random walk plume model to look at the way in which sediment disperses. And what you have in the top part is that you have a... um, A description of the concentrations of the material in the water column and in the second part you actually have where the material is depositing. Now the really important area where it's depositing is the area just at the top of the box that's marked because that's a very important shellfish area Um, and what you have to do is demonstrate um, whether the dredging activity seriously affects the shellfish beds. And that's all done using a computational model, which is uh, ground truth against measurements. So that's giving you a very um, clear picture of where material deposits. Okay, You can just see that there. So that's the first part of the hydraulic studies. The second part was to start looking at other issues... Um, And one of the things we needed to do was set up a three-dimensional computational model of the flows. Now this is important in this area because the the flows in the bed layer and surface layer are different um, because you have a certain amount of freshwater influx in the area. And you can see there that I'm showing you the flows in that particular bend in the river um, for the surface and bed layers. and they're the, the baseline flows. And you've got um, a springtide flood and a springtide ebb. And the blues are the surface layer, the reds are the bed layer. We do the same with the terminal in place, and the, the terminal is basically a, a, the sort of um, square part at the, at the top of the slide. And we get those two pieces of information, and then we use that information to predict our sediment transport. And what we're looking at here, again, if I can get it to run, is the impact of the reclamation. So the reclamation is the the squared-off corner there, and you can see that um, we're now looking at sediment transport in the estuary, and we've got the surface, a mid-depth and a bed layer, um, all of which are... um, responding differently in terms of the uh, concentrations and depositions. So the top one is surface layer concentrations, the bottom one is bed layer concentrations, and the the third one is actually what uh, deposition you get when uh, when you're looking at the sediment transport processes. So we've gone from flows to sediment transport. Um, And you can see that you're getting quite a lot of deposition in that area immediately west of the... Um, of the key, and that's where your, your main area of deposition is. That's the computer model. What does it actually mean? What does it really mean um, in terms of deposition, say, over a year? Um, and what you do, this is where the skill and experience that comes in, is that you interpret that information to actually allow yourself to look at a distribution of where um, sediments move to and from, and what we've done here is in the blue we've shown the uh, sediment transport information between 1970 and 1998, and then 1998 to 2002, Um, and you're getting observed volumes of deposition in metres cubed per year, and that's trying to build up a picture of where, where sediments actually move and rest in the estuary, that's short term. Let's look at long-term. We need a bit of context for this. And the long-term is um, basically what's been happening since 1970 in the river itself. And this is where you use information on the bed levels at two different snapshots in time. You subtract them. So this is measured information. And you look at um, where, where material has deposited. Um, and what the changes in the bed has been between those two years. So this is using field measurements to try and understand the history of the development of the, of the area. And um, the numbers in blue are basically areas where it's um, eroded, and in red is where it's accumulated, red and yellow where it's accumulated. So that gives you short term You can then use that again with the sediment transport models to look at what that does for you in the long term. And here I'm concentrating on that area just to the west of the terminal where we need to look at long-term changes in the mudflats. And what we've been able to do is do a forward prediction over the next seven to ten years. So we've gone from hydrodynamic modelling to sediment transport modelling to what happens in the long term. And that means we've used a computer model to look at how that develops. And essentially, the answer is um, bottom right, which is the change in deposition on that uh, mudflat. And again, the blues and greens are um, erosion and the reds are accretion. So there's a certain amount of erosion happening in that area as a consequence of constructing this terminal. And what that really means is, is that if it's consented, some sort of mitigation will need to be put in place in order to compensate for that loss. Okay. So, we've done some interpretation, and those were the results. Um, And that's basically um, an example of using um, hydraulic modelling to get the information that you want. So that information is interpreted to provide consequential impacts on ecology. We did a little bit on mitigation and compensation and one of the things I've talked about is is that additional sites will need to be provided, particularly for wading birds. Um, And as part of that you also have to agree to monitoring, which is basically field measurements during the construction period. And just to bring you up to date, uh, there was a public inquiry on this in 2003-04 and they eventually got consent earlier this year and hopefully they'll start construction at some point soon. That's it for ports. Going to talk a little bit about industrial applications. Um, Rather than talk about a specific project here, I've just chosen two or three applications just to illustrate the use of, uh, of some of the models. Again physical and computational models um, and all backed up by by field measurements. Uh, Pumping stations, we do a lot of work on pumping stations, Um, these are the things that are near refineries or power stations where they're actually drawing water in for cooling and then they discharge it out once it's been used to cool the the pumping station. What you can see on the the right-hand side is actually some results from a CFD model, uh, which we use for pumping stations. Um, It's only really been possible to do this in the last few years because the CFD models have become a lot more efficient, so they actually run rather more quickly than they used to, um, and there's enough capacity on the average computer to actually make the code something that's um, viable to use. Uh, something complicated like this, and we're only looking really at sort of bulk flow characteristics and where you put chambers and screens, so it's, it's very much a first pass, it uses something like three million elements. Um, and that's quite big and quite sort of hefty to run. So what you're seeing there is essentially flows through a pumping station. And we'll use something like this at a very early stage in a project. Um, You don't get any confirmation of vortices. It doesn't do vortices properly. If you want to do vortices properly, you actually have to use a physical model. So you'll use this in an early stage to sort of filter out options and to look at different options. What you'll do at the final design stage is you'll use a physical model, and that's a physical model of the same pumping station. Um, And that's actually a lot better in terms of detail. Um, And you will get detailed representation of vortices and eddies um, in that type of model. And again, um, through scaling used there, um, so that we get the right representation of the the water flows. So that's a good example of where you've used both computational and physical models. And as I said, the computational model is, is one of the new CFD codes that we're using. Substitute structures and scour, again... We're using CFD codes for this. Um, what we're looking at here is a plan view of um, a, uh, basically a jacket for an offshore structure, which is linked to a pipeline. Um, and what the computational model is being used for here is to try and get flow details, velocities, and it does do vortex shedding. It's been quite good at that. Um, and what we're trying to get at is loads on structures, but also bed shear stress so that we can look at, um, at scour around the structures, so it's a good example of hydraulics leading into sediment transport being used to support the design process. Similarly um, you can also use these types of computational models to look at subsea pipelines Um, and what we're showing there is we're showing again a, um, a section through a subsea pipeline Going again. Um, and you can see that we've got the pipeline and then if you're very sharp-eyed you can see there's a piggyback line on the top of it so a smaller line on top of it and what we're trying to get at is the, uh, the vortices that are, are coming off the, the pipeline um, and we will also use that for prediction of forces which is what they're actually interested in for the design and that's using one of the new uh, CFD codes. That's more or less the end of the industrial applications and I'll just take the last few minutes to talk about um, floods and flood risk management. Um, It's a pretty hot topic at the moment, floods, because we've had a few of them over the summer. Um, and It's an area where hydraulic um, techniques are used in strategy, planning and design. And what you tend to do is you tend to use fairly conventional computational models for river and drainage flows. Um, There's some new methods around to model inundation, so that's water on land, whether it's coming up through the drains or because the river has come out of bank. Um, You then use that information in a sort of probabilistic approach to try and look at flood outlines, and I'll say a little bit more about those. Um, And it also gives you the ability to ask what-if questions. So... If, for example, you have a new development, you can use these types of model to look at the flood risk for that new development. You can also ask the what-if questions about things like climate change, what happens for different climate change scenarios in terms of how it impacts on flooding. Um, these types of techniques are actually used for the Environment Agency in producing their flood maps, which you'll, you'll find on their website. Um, We first of all, as I said earlier, need to try and understand the processes and give it some labels. Um, We actually use um, a particular way of describing things called source pathway receptor. Um, And what you do is you define a source, which is river or sea. You define a pathway by which the flood um, travels, and then you design a receptor, which in this case will be people and properties in a floodplain. So that's how you define it. And then you can model it. So if we look at a fairly typical bend in a bit of river, um, we've got a river and we've got a floodplain. We'll have a certain number of flood defences along the river onto the floodplain. We've got a source Um, which is a load of some sort and a probability of that load occurring. We'll have a pathway, which uh, can be a defence that fails. And then we'll have a receptor, which is the land that is going to be inundated when the flood actually occurs. And then your final component is is what damage occurs. And that um, methodology, which uses hydraulic models as its base, is getting essentially at the economic damage of flooding using the route of hydraulic models. Forget about the adverts at the front. This is actually quite a nice um, illustration. So this is a a, a map of a a village which is um, being flooded. And the blue that you can see appearing is uh, water that is coming up from the drainage network uh, in a very high rainfall event and what the model is doing is, is that it's showing you how the flood is progressing through the village. Similarly here we've got a flood which is uh, again progressing through properties and you're getting a fairly realistic representation of where the floodwaters will go. And you can turn that into, by doing lots of different runs, you can turn that into a strategic planning tool. Uh, you can't see it very well, but we've actually got an OS map at the back of this. And what we're doing is, is we're identifying areas that are flooded um, in, and what is the likelihood of that flood occurring at what level. Um, and essentially, they're the types of maps that you actually get on the Environment Agency website. So... When you're deciding that you're going to invest in a house, you can tell um, what your likelihood of being flooded is. So, that's used as strategic planning tool. So, what we've got there is that we've got a risk-based tool, which is using the hydraulic model as input to that risk-based tool. Okay. Okay. That's more or less all I'm going to say. Um, I hope I've given you a bit of an illustration of how we use hydraulics to solve real-life problems. Um, I've talked about some quite interesting and new work, but there's plenty of challenges left, so there's plenty for people at universities to do. Um, And innovative and imaginative approaches are always needed. So that's all from me. As do I. Yeah. I wonder why not. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: just wondering whether it's got fast enough that you can use it in almost real time for floods. In other words, uh, given that you have rainfall in a given area, can you give the police emergency uh, people information before the flood gets there? You've got, what, 12, hours?
1: Yeah, you can. You can, and in fact, there are places in the world where it's used. Um, We um, Places like, for example, um, well, I know of installations, I know of two in India and two in Thailand, where they actually have real-time flood forecasting systems, and they use it as a means for um, evacuation planning, for example. So, yes, the, the technology is there and is available and could be used. We don't. we don't at the moment no <laughs> I think it's a question of, um, of costs and priorities isn't it so. I think it has more to do with politics than hydraulics
0: so. <laughs> maybe I could ask a question um, could you comment about the need or otherwise for hydraulics in education Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of things like um, scale modelling in laboratories, which is kind of a reducing subject, I would think, in civil engineering departments, as opposed to, say, numerical modelling. You know, what, what should we be doing as universities in terms of educating engineers in the point of view of a company like HR? Wellington?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel it's a bit of a shame that um, that there isn't more done on... On sort of particularly scale modelling, but I think the difficulty that I see at universities is is that um, because you have a sort of um, a changing population, if you like, um, it's actually quite hard, I think, to build up a capability. And one of the things we did a few years ago, which you know about, is that actually at Wallingford we had a specific facility that was used by lots of different universities who came in and used it. And I think that is actually quite good because it allows the universities access to a resource that everybody's contributed to. So instead of having lots of small flumes in lots of different universities, you can have one big flume in one place that lots of universities can use. And I think that's quite important. Um, And it's something I think we're in a bit of a danger of losing. Um, I think there's so much emphasis now on computational models that we certainly get graduates who are terribly, wonderfully good at computational models, but when you lean over and say, well, I don't think that's quite right, they don't necessarily know that it's not quite right. So, it would be good to uh, have a little more exposure to reality. That wasn't meant to be critical, it was meant to be a a positive point.
0: I guess that we're using a combination of in-house codes and commercial codes. Could you give some insights into what are the attributes of the code that you've been developing yourselves and whether, for example, you also license them to use by third parties or whether you prefer just to keep them in-house and use them on a consultancy basis?
1: We actually use a big combination of things. Um, We don't tend to write a lot of our own codes from scratch. What we tend to do is write um, things that supplement existing codes. So for example, a lot of our flow modelling is done using the TELEMAC, um, Finite Element Code, which is a code produced by um, EDF in France, Um, and a lot of the work we've done on that is actually developing things like sediment transport routines. So the actual basic flow model is unchanged, we develop sediment transport routines, Um, The uh, stuff I showed you on inundation, that's an Infoworks code, and that's produced by our sister company, Wallingford Software, and that is a commercially available code. No problem with that. Um, The CFD code we're using is CFX, and again, that's a commercial code. What we tend to do with them is we tend to take the commercial codes and then we tend to tailor them to what we want them to do. Um, And that's either by tinkering with the code, if we have source code, or by... um, working out how you best use it to do what we want to do. Um, And with CFX in particular, we tend to feed back to ANSYS, you know, things that we would like to see in it, which help us do our job. So it's a big mix. Um, One of the things we're actually involved in at the moment um, is um, trying to put together a framework that will allow different codes to be slotted in to a common framework which can then um, be picked up and used by, for example, by universities um, to plug, you know, a piece of code that they're interested in into a wider family. Um, so it's, it's a mixture, a mixture. You
0: know, I'm a resident of West Oxfordshire and um, watched a number of my friends' houses get uh, washed out I've um, not read anything about any work that's been done to... Um, any advice on how to mitigate any future damage, well, were we a victim
1: of an extreme event or was there something else that was implied? It was a fairly severe event, um, there is quite a lot of work going on, there are at least two if not three I'm looking at Ian because he can tell me, at least two if not three reviews going on of the flooding that occurred recently um, and there's a, certainly a lessons learned, which I think should get fed back at some stage
0: I think also the has been looking at yeah. um, devices that you can put in front of your yes. front door. To... Yes.
1: We've done quite a lot of work on flood products as well.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ian, do you to want to... A strong,
0: uh, sub for advertising
1: I'm just going to ask my colleague, Ian, would you like to say what... The, there's various things going on at a parliamentary level looking at the, the floods issues. So there is things going on, it's just uh, going on in the background.
0: Well, of course, in some parts of the world where there's a lot of flooding, they build houses on stilts, which would give West Oxfordshire a very interesting... But the the question I wanted to ask was about uh, pollution. And with reference to what happened in New Orleans, because I think, you know, that was obviously a very extreme event, but mm. a lot of the trouble they had afterwards was due to chemical <coughs> and other types of like oil yep. pollution. And you talked a lot about uh, sediment, but you didn't say it about the chemical effects. Yep. Uh, do you take those?
1: Yeah, no, you can. You can. I mean, uh, you, you normally model those using um, a sort of water quality model. But uh, quite a lot of the modelling of things like um, oil spill, for example. Um, The random walk plume model that I showed for sediment dispersion can equally, with a modification, be used to look at oil and pollutant dispersion. So yes, that's something that you can quite straightforwardly do. So I'm
0: I'm wondering if that has any effect on things like planning consents for uh, filling stations, for example. Yes.
1: Yes, it does. I mean, one of the things that we were actually involved in um, was looking at uh, the issue of runoff uh, at the new um, Terminal 5 at Heathrow. Um, And there you obviously have to look at at pollutants in the water and where those pollutants go. Um, So yes, uh, that's one of the things that you can model using the computational models that I was referring to.
0: As somebody who lives within the floodplain and has flood water within oh, half the fit- thickness fit- sort of a quarry tile in the house, i uh, an interest in our area to how quickly you can bring models up to date when everyone wants to clear the ditches first. Don't worry about all these big super bands, uh, uh rivers going parallel to the various existing courses. But if everyone cleared out their ditches, how quickly could you uh, adjust all your models?
1: Very quickly indeed. <laughs> so, right. You can do it very quickly, yes. And you do? Yes, you do. I mean, you, you will always update a model if you've got new information to update it with. Um, I mean, the National Flood Risk Assessment Exercise, um, we, we do annually. So the models are brought up to date annually um, for changes in you know, the floodplain.
0: you suggest would be
1: the main challenges remaining for R and D? Main challenges for R and D? Well, you can get breaking waves sorted out. That'd be quite good. Um, flow in porous media. Um, morphology and how that translates into ecology. That'd ah, be enough to be going on with, wouldn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Jane has given a talk in which she's covered quite a lot of. Hydraulics, and she's looked at some very important um, problems linking the past to the present and we've got the link between Freud and scale modelling and modern CFD being able to model things like ships coming out of harbours and these are very nice links and link on into the future I want to say something about the difficulty of hydraulic engineering why it will keep people in business for a very long time and the difficulty is that water is by its behaviour, it's a non-linear behaviour because the free surface conditions make the behaviour non-linear. And there's an anecdote, and I don't know whether it's true but I'll tell you it anyway, and that was that Einstein, Albert, had his little son Hans Albert running around being a nuisance, I know this only too well as a parent, and he wanted to do something to stop the son irritating him. So. He said, Go away and think how long it will take for rainfall of a given intensity to cover the surface of a field of such dimensions. No doubt the sun was aged about nine very bright. <laughs> and the sun went away and said, But Dad, someone later said, Dad, the droplets don't necessarily drop all on the same spot. The and he said, Well, yes, you must think about it probabilistically. Some time later, and this is what I like to think, when Hans Albert was going through the teenage rejection of parent, he decided to become a hydraulic engineer, not a physicist, and he decided to look at the most difficult of problems, the ones which his father was not keen to go any further into, which was sediment transport in free surface flows, which really has to be one of the greatest challenge problems of all and we have not really got to the point where we can model properly say pouring water from one glass to another so i think the lecture has shown what we can do we can model very large scale hydrodynamics to some extent we can model sediment transport to some extent we can link laboratory and computational models together we can go so far as maybe to model floods and I want to also answer some of the points about So again with a personal anecdote. During the summer, I was phoned up by the press and asked for my opinion on the flooding. And I gave it, with <laughs> some help from Paul, to temper it. <laughs> it was, of course, misrepresented by the press as the following. Uh, the Queen, This is CNN, I think, or Reuters. It went round the world. The Queen sent her commiseration to all the flood victims over there. But Professor Borthwick of Oxford University says that the flooding has got nothing to do with climate change. So that wasn't quite true, but it did elicit some angry responses, particularly from Montana. (laughs) The computational and other methods for analysing flooding have come a long way. And I think it is worth noting that in China in the 1800s, around about 870,000 people died in one flood. In 1998, floods of a similar magnitude occurred but only 3,000 people died and that's thanks in part to the great deal of effort that was put in by hydraulic engineers to go and assess the likely impacts of floods, build flood protection schemes and have usable flood warning schemes. That more or less wraps up kind of links to the talk I really want to thank you very much for giving a fascinating talk and covering so much about hydraulic engineering and its links to environmental engineering. So really everybody give a thanks to James Smith. (laughs)